Well, for a week now, we've focused on the next phase of God's plan. And throughout the week, we've heard descriptions of how drastically different life will be in the millennium and beyond, in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And I hope we have all been convinced that the next phase of God's plan is something we need to yearn for. Not only yearn for, but to pray for and long to experience, to want it badly. However, there is a day yet ahead that precedes all of that. That is the personal pivot point that could determine whether we make it to the next phase or not. It's all well and good to talk about, and it's very important to talk about and rehearse what God has planned for us, but there are certain bridges along the way to reach that point for us. And so the day that I'm talking about is a day that will require that each of us make a choice that determines our future, whether we will have the opportunity to be there or not. And I'm talking about a single, literal day. Indeed, a moment in which a decision must be made. A decision that we, whether we know it or not, are preparing for in our everyday lives now. And even deeper than that, we are preparing our hearts now for whether this will be an easy or hard decision when that day comes. So what am I talking about? Well, let's read what Jesus said about this time ahead in Luke 17, beginning in verse 26. So if you'll turn there to begin, Luke 17. Been a number of times when Luke 17 has been referenced throughout the feast. Let's go there again. And notice these words of Jesus here in Luke 17, beginning in verse 26. Luke 17 and verse 26. He said, and as it was in the days of Noah, it will be also in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. And likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate. They drank. They bought. They sold. They planted. They built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. On a single day. And even so... Will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? So he's just given a description of how life was for those people then, but he also says it will be the same for most people before a certain day yet ahead of us. And for most, they will be living life as they always have, oblivious to the massive change to life that is about to happen that will affect them all, The reference here to marriage, to planting, to building implies people making plans for the future as though the future is going to continue. Just as they did in the days before the day 
Noah closed the door to the ark. And the day when, when Lot went out of Sodom. So take special note of the words days in plural here in this section and day singular in this passage. The plural days denotes the time before the literal day of, the, of Christ's return. A whole passage of time, a whole uh, series of months and years, perhaps. In fact, the context is Jesus answering the Pharisees' question in verse 20 about all of this. Verse 20, where it says, Now, when the, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. And so he goes on to tell them these types of things about the kingdom of God. And so this is Jesus' description of life for most of society at that crucial time. In other words, billions will be clueless as to what is about to happen to them. However, he then gives more a more specific message to those who do have a clue in verse 31. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Now, I believe that this warning is not for the general public, but rather to his special called out ones living at that time. Those who have a clue. And notice it starts out in that day. What day is this? Well, this, the description is of those who have to leave a place, isn't it? The first person is at his home. The other is in a field. And the setting in these scenarios implies where one lives and works. And importantly, the sense is they must leave this place in haste. Therefore, the day here, I believe, is a literal day when a choice must be made by those who have a clue. An individual's choice to leave one's home and livelihood to go somewhere. And based on the context of the previous verses, what we've just read, and aligning those with the parallel account in Matthew 24, if you'll begin to turn there. We'll read verses 17 through 21. Let's put these two together to get a more complete picture of what he's talking about. Matthew 24. Verses 17 through 21. Matthew 24. 17 through 21. Where it's recorded for us from from Matthew. He says, let him not let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Very similar to what we just read. And then it goes on in verse 19, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing in those days, nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there shall be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And there's only one time that that describes. Of which we know. And so the context Putting these two parallel verses together, we see that it's talking about that time ahead. And it appears to be when God's people have to flee to a place of safety before the tribulation. So here it is. 
Here it is. The moment of truth for God's people living at this time. After the church has been talking about this for decades, and you know we've been talking about this for many, many decades, and anticipating it for as long as each of us have known of this, it is finally here. The precise moment when each will make the decision to flee or not. And it comes down to an individual choice. The sense is in Luke 17, if you'll go back there, 17 and verse 31. I meant to have you keep your place there. Sorry about that. Luke 17 and verse 31. The sense is urgency. In that day, he who is on the, on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. Don't even go back into the house. Go. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. As though one will not have time to ponder or plan for days. Which no doubt will be a major part of the challenge for this decision. The urgency. You got to do it now. And are you ready to go? But within the context of the urgency of this moment, notice what Jesus says next in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Three little words that carry so much meaning for those in this situation. Remember Lot's wife. And this is not simply a statement of observation. It is a warning. As is made obvious in the next verse, verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Remember Lot's wife, because this is really what it all comes down to for the people of God in that moment. When life matters most, which life matters most? That's the central question. The one that we have now or the next that we've been talking about during this feast. The one we know so well in which we are so comfortable or the one we, in which we only have a promise and seems far off. But the question that Jesus poses to his people living at that, at that time is this. Which do you choose? Which life do you choose? Because you have to make a choice. Punctuated by the warning, remember Lot's wife. So today I'd like to use Jesus' warning to consider the challenges some of God's people will face during the end times. And because it's the example Jesus used, we'll spend some time examining the story of Lot's family leaving Sodom as a parallel for God's people living before the return of Jesus Christ. And after that, we'll spend the rest of the sermon talking about where our eyes need to be focused going forward for us to successfully meet the challenges of this time ahead. For those of us who are living at that time and face this as a reality in our lives. Because God has given us a vision of a bright and awesome future during this feast. But it's important to know what could trip each of us up in reaching that goal. It will not be easy. I guarantee it. We have a cunning enemy 
who is an expert in turning our hearts away from God in subtle ways. In ways we don't even perceive. But will come to light in that moment. He is working on our hearts now, Satan is, to make it very difficult later when a choice between this world and the next will be, need to be made. So let's heed the warning by learning the lessons from God's word. And the title of the sermon is Remember Lot's Wife. So let's go to Genesis 19 to examine the story Jesus referred of Lot in Sodom. Genesis 19. And as we go through the story, I'll draw some parallels to our lives now. Now, the context in Genesis 19, you have to go back to verse uh, chapter 18, where Abraham, who's known as Abram at that time, is visited by two angels and the other one who's identified as the Lord, who becomes obvious, is the one who became came as Jesus Christ later. And in that chapter, chapter 18, Abraham is shown is told that Sarah will bear a son. And afterward, the two angels go to, on to Sodom because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And because their sin is very grave, as it says in Genesis 18 and verse 20. So it was a dual purpose for that trip. One was for Abraham and the other was for checking out Sodom. And as the angels are traveling to Sodom, Abraham negotiates with the Lord to save Sodom. If only 10 righteous people can be found in it, only 10. So let's start reading in Genesis 19 in verse one. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, it says. And this may indicate that Lot had some prominence in Sodom because the gates of the city were where the elders sat to conduct public meetings and settle disputes. It's where they could be found so that they could conduct business like that. And Lot rose to meet the two and bowed down to them. And I believe that Lot did know. I believe that he recognized that these were angels. These were different than just people passing by, or at least that they were from God. And I believe that that's why he bowed himself to the ground. He showed great reverence by bowing down to the ground, the same as Abraham had done in the previous chapter. Let's go on in verse two. And he said, hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. And there, then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Well, I believe it's because Lot knew that they were from God that he insisted that they stay in his home, not just any anybody just coming to go to Sodom. But also, I believe and I think it's obvious that Lot knew the men of the city well enough to know that the angels should not stay in the open square, that that was a very dangerous thing to do for anyone. But since. I believe he knew who they were. Or had an idea that he wanted them to stay in his home. And once in his house, Lot did the same as Abraham did in the previous chapter by preparing a feast. But notice something very interesting. It says Lot made the feast himself. In contrast to Sarah being directly involved in Abraham's feast in the previous chapter. Lot's wife doesn't appear to be involved at all. 
which I think gives us a hint about Lot's wife. Go on in verse 4. Now, before they lay down for bed for that night, after they ate, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called the lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And you know what that means. So here is where the depravity of the city becomes clear. Notice the men of the city, both old and young, all the people, it says, came to Lot's door. And we have no idea how large Sodom was. Their cities were definitely not like Cincinnati or that size or anything, anything close to that. But the impression is this was not a few men. The sense is tens or hundreds or maybe even thousands. There at Lot's door at night. And obviously, homosexuality was prevalent and normal in Sodom. And it's amazing how brazen the men were in their demands. Bring them out right now so that we may do what we want to them. They don't even hide their, in, their intention. It's not cloaked at all. It's out there. Obvious to all. And think about how this mob formulated. I mean, this was before you could call for a flash mob through social media. Nothing like that. So they had to be put together as a mob by each man talking to each other. Maybe going house to house. And perhaps it started at the local watering hole. And perhaps it started as soon as someone saw Lot with the angels in the open square that they started whispering. It doesn't say. But either way, there they were. And homosexuality was so open and normal that the organizers didn't have to hide their intentions to each other. They knew. They knew their intent. And they didn't have to convince anyone that this is what they wanted to do. Perhaps thousands of men, old and young. And this shamelessness tells us a lot about Sodom, doesn't it? But Sodom wasn't the only place recorded in the Bible with such a boldness about sin. Put your place there in your ribbon, perhaps there in uh, Genesis 19. And let's go to Isaiah 3, verses 8 and 9. And read about a description of another city, another place, at another time. Later on in this, perhaps just as bad. Isaiah 3. Beginning in verse 8. Isaiah 3, verses 8 and 9. God says, For Jerusalem, his city, stumbled, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. To provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Using Sodom as a comparison to Jerusalem at that time. Judah had reached the same blatant attitude about sin. Not only homosexuality, but 
sin in general. And let's notice another description in Jeremiah 6, in verse 15. Jeremiah 6, verse 15, another indictment against Jerusalem. Where God describes it as this in Jeremiah 6, in verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all, nor did they know how to blush. They had reached the point where they didn't even distinguish it as sin. It was just the way things are. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord, because of this attitude. Very much like Sodom. Instead of a wicked city, this is talking about God's chosen people. It's not talking about a Gentile city like Sodom. But like Sodom, sin was so prevalent that they didn't even blush. And what's behind attitudes such as this towards sin? Well, one description is in Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. And let's read verses 49 and 50. Ezekiel 16. Forty nine and fifty. Once again, calling out Jerusalem, God pinpoints the societal conditions that produce such prevalent sin. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom, he tells Jerusalem, your sister. Your kin. She and her daughter had pride. Fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I sought fit. Pride. Fullness of food, which can be translated materialism. And abundance of idleness. And an uncaring, self-centered approach to life. This lifestyle contributed to Sodom's blatant sin and its downfall. But does this description sound familiar? It should. It should, because the same could easily be said of ours. Pride. Materialism. An abundance of idleness and a self-centered approach to life that is prevalent in our society and is becoming even more. And as God says they were haughty and committed abominations before him, and he eventually did something about it, here expressed as he took them away, we're heading to the same path. Heading to the same conclusion. And notice Paul's description of a similar society in Romans 1. Going to the New Testament now, Romans 1, verse 18, starting in verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because 
What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. It's obvious, for since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by everyone willing to look. Being understood by the things that are made, the creation. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they really are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So not only coming out in what they do, but it shows that it starts inside, with their thoughts and their hearts. Drop down to verse 26. For this reason... God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteousness, righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving death, they not only do the same, but also approve of them, those who practice them. The same arrogant approach and rejection of God. And that phrase, approve of those who practice them, if that doesn't sum up academia, Hollywood, and many politicians right now, I don't know what does. A society where the overwhelming pressure is to accept blatant sin is not only expected, but required. And no, we haven't yet reached where Sodom was, but we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. Let's go back to see how Lot handled his predicament in Sodom by going back to Genesis 19. And let's pick up the story in verse 6. Genesis 19 and verse 6. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren. Notice he's pleading with them. Do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you that... And you may do with them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Well, here we see how Lot handled this situation. And I think we would all agree that Lot didn't handle it very well. Well, there's no way, there's no way in the world to condone Lot offering his daughters. I mean, that is, even to think that is amazing. I do not think it's, I mean, I, I do think it's important to bring out a few points to perhaps put this in a different perspective. First, according to the New American Commentary, it says this about hospitality in general at that time. It says, hospitality required protection 
And at Lot's invitation, the strangers had received sanctuary under his roof. That's what the phrase meant. Is that you're safe within my home. And I will make sure that you remain safe. So that was kind of the thought at the time. And I believe he especially felt the need to protect his guests because he knew that they were angels. Without realizing that angels can probably take care of themselves. So that's the first point. Secondly, fear. Fear can cause people to do all sorts of crazy things. You know that. Because we've all been there. But can you imagine what it would have been like to have a crowd of angry men outside your home at night? It's easy for us to judge Lot while we read this in our air-conditioned comfort. Not while facing a similar uncontrollable mob by ourselves. What's also interesting, though, is to note that back in Genesis 12, Lot had witnessed his uncle Abraham, Abram at the time, tell Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife because he feared his life if he told the truth. Once again, there's no way to justify Lot offering his daughters, but I think we should remember that fear factor in all of this. And thirdly, Lot's lack of discernment, I think this is the most important thing, is it was affected by his living in that environment for as long as he did. And there's no way to get around that. To even think of offering his daughter shows a serious lack of judgment that any spiritually strong person would not even consider. But I believe Lot's ability to properly discern was compromised long before this by putting himself in that environment in the first place. And he did put himself in that environment. When given the choice by Abram, Lot chose this area. Keep your place there and go back to Genesis 13. And let's notice that. Genesis 13, beginning in verse 10. Genesis 13 and verse 10. When given the choice by Abram, he says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And notice it says here that he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. At first he pitched his tent as far as Sodom, but eventually he got closer by moving into the city. But the sense is, even when he made this decision, verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So, The way I read this is that he knew, he knew where he was going and he put himself in that environment and that affected his judgment as it does us. It's interesting in second Peter two, notice this second Peter two verses seven and eight. It gives a curious description of lot that says something about his situation that I'm sure we all have. Scratch our heads over why Peter used this description 
to describe Lot. Second Peter two verses seven and eight is what we'll read. Second Peter two. Verse seven, breaking into the sentence, he says, and delivered righteous lot, righteous lot, righteous lot. Huh. But notice what he says next. Who was oppressed by their filthy conduct, by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, within a discourse about God's ultimate judgment against sinners is what Peter's context is. Peter says that Lot tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So if you only read about Lot in Genesis, it would be easy to see him only as a weak, spineless and foolish man. But Peter here gives a glimpse inside Lot. Which can be a description of what's going on inside of many of us. As we see our society descending into more and more evil. Where we are tormented. By seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. The lesson that a lack of spiritual discernment as demonstrated by Lot is affected by our environment is reinforced in Romans 12 and verse 2. If you'll turn there. Romans 12 and verse 2. Dr. Fall read about this, uh, read this scripture in his description of the monarchs because of what it describes about metamorphosis. Uh, Romans 12 and verse 2. But I'd like to take another angle on this and show that what happened to Lot can happen to us because of one thing, one very important thing that's brought out at the first here in chapter in Romans 12 and verse two, do not be conformed to this world. And that word conform means to be shaped as to become like. To form yourself, to look just like everyone else in the world, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed metamorphous by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, the way that you are, the way that you can be more spiritually discerning is by not conforming yourself to the world and thinking just like them. Lot was definitely influenced by his society. And we can too, without even knowing it. If we conform ourselves too much to this world. We will think just like them. And our spiritual discernment will be very weak. We can become dull and conflicted like Lot. And we can make all sorts of terrible decisions. Well, going back to Genesis 19, let's pick up the story in verse 9. Thankfully, the angel saved Lot from himself. He didn't have to do what he said that they could do. Genesis 19 in verse 9. And they, being the angels, oh, the, this is the, the mob, rather. They, they the angels, uh, I'm sorry, the mob said, stand back. And then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Like, you know, this foreigner who thinks he's better than everyone else. 
And now we will deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, this referring to the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. They didn't stop trying to find the door, but they became weary because they couldn't find it anymore. And so the angels were sent to evaluate Sodom's condition. And now they needed no more evidence that this place was beyond hope. The angels had seen enough. And so now the time had come for judgment. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. They mercifully gave Lot a chance to save others, loved ones. And so he does. He tries that. In verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. I assume Lot's sons-in-law were natives of that area. And so they probably didn't see the problem with the place. It was always been like that. So what's the big deal? And this reaction of the sons-in-law reminds me that we who proclaim calamity for our nation probably seem like crazed religious fatalists to people, even our non-believing relatives. And we just think, they just think, you're crazy. I don't see anything. You're a little wacko in the head. And to the secular mind, we are the ones who come across as comically bizarre and out of touch. And so Lot's relatives just laughed at the warning. And all this happened at night after Lot's household was about to go to sleep. But then the scene shifts to the break of day. Some hours later. And Lot's household has likely known that they would need to flee for, by this time, perhaps hours. And so if you were in this scenario, if this was you, what would you have done during those hours? Verse 15. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while, the man, while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the, daughter, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Amazingly. And they were told to leave. That now is the time. It says that the family lingered. Which can be rendered as delayed or waited. And so this was the moment, the moment, the moment of decision for Lot's family. The moment when a decision had to be made to save their lives. And the sense is, of, is, is that if the angels had not intervened, they would have blown it. And there's much to glean from this example that can be instructive for us. 
But notice, this was primarily Lot's failure as the one to whom God granted favor. I mean, he's the reason why they're there. Because of his association with Abraham. In verse 15, the angels urged Lot to take his wife and daughters, looking to him for leadership. And notice who it specifically says lingered in verse 16, while he lingered. Once again, Lot comes across as weak, and he is. But I have a theory. I have a theory as to what may have been in play here. What was going on? Reading between the lines. And this theory... And 75 cents, we'll buy you a cup of coffee. Actually, coffee is a lot, old, lot more expensive than that now, isn't it? So, $1.50. This and $1.50 or whatever coffee costs, we'll buy you a cup of coffee. It's interesting that in verse 15 is the first time Lot's wife is mentioned in the Bible. There's no mention of Lot being married when he was with Abram earlier in the story, nor in this story until now, until he brought them into the the house. Remember, it said that only Lot made the feast. So one theory I have is Lot married a woman from Sodom. In other words, this was her hometown. Perhaps the place she grew up. And if this is true, she had deep connections to this place and Lot knew it. You can see why she would be less than enthused by the angel's visit and therefore didn't support Lot in hosting them in the first place. And even less enthused by the proclamation of Sodom's destruction. And perhaps knowing his wife's feelings, as most husbands do, caused Lot to be conflicted about fleeing. And maybe this was also why Lot bargained with the angels for an alternative place in in which to flee. Notice, beginning in verse 18, Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your uh, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains. I cannot do what you said I should do. Let some evil overtake me, and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. It's just a little city. Please let me escape there. Let me go there to that other city. And my soul shall live. Maybe that was behind that as well. I don't want to take my family up there to the mountains because my wife likes the city. Can we go to this other one? It's small. Not as big as Sodom, it's insignificant. So no harm, right? So staying with my theory, perhaps Lot was trying to appease his wife by going to another city. Maybe she was a city girl. And he knew she didn't like the country. (laughs) And even though it was just a small city, at least it wasn't a cave. At least she had a chance to be happy. Well, no matter the reason, the angels allowed them to go to the city. Verse 21, and he said to him, see, I favored you concerning this thing also in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Finally, after all this, 
God's judgment came. It came to the moment. The sun, verse 23, had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. It came down to this actual event. After all the warnings, after all of the judgments, it came to the precise moment when God did something about it. So after telling Abram about it earlier in the previous chapter that this was probably going to happen, then Lot and his family, throughout the night, destruction came in a single day. And Lot's family was saved until, verse 26, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife looked back. Now, did she look back because of fear of the brimstone and fire of the commotion that was going on? Or was she curious what destruction looked like, like passing a car accident? I don't think it was either of those. In fact, verse 26, rendered in the Net Bible, says, But Lot's wife looked back longingly and was turned into a pillar of salt. And that Hebrew verb means to look intently, to gaze. So Lot's family was told to not look behind them nor stay anywhere in the plain. And it appears this instruction was a test. Because it could reveal the heart of each individual in Lot's family. And you could understand, certainly understand why she looked back, if my theory is right, that that was her hometown. She was giving up much of what she loved in the destruction. Family, friends, her possessions, her home. Indeed, her whole life was destroyed. And so, after rehearsing the story of Lot, it's important to go back now where we began to Jesus' warning in Luke 17. Because this is what he was referring to in this passage. Because this brings this story and the warning back to our lives. Luke 17, verses 28, starting in verse 28. Luke 17, verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The world will be like Lot's sons-in-law, living life and laughing at any proclamation of destruction, but just as with Sodom. That destruction will come. And then our warning once again. Verse 31. In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, one who is in the field, let him not, notice, turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And so we've come full circle to the central point of this sermon. And that is, what will we do in that moment? 
Notice how I phrase that question. Not what, what would we do, but rather what will we do in that moment. I believe that that is the essence of Jesus' statement in verse 31. Remember, he starts with the phrase, in that day. And perhaps it means a short period of time. It's not just maybe a literal day. But the moment of truth will come down to that moment. And for those of us who have been anticipating this for decades, that day, which I mean to take the literal day we flee, what will we do? What will we do? Not what we think we'll do, but when it comes down to that moment, what will we do? Most of us probably think, oh yeah, I will have no problem leaving it all. I cannot wait to leave all this behind. I am so fed up with this world, it will be a super easy choice. I hope so. I really, really hope so for all of our sakes. I really, really hope so, but... I wonder. I really wonder. I wonder if it will be so easy. I wonder if many of us will linger as Lot did. Perhaps because of being personally conflicted with similar opposing factors clouding our judgment at the time, which maybe not even be factors right now, but at that time they could be. You know, life doesn't stay static. All sorts of things happen happens within relationships that could be in play then that aren't now. I mean, you could be 16, 15, 18. You could be very young and not even have a family now. But then it could be totally different. You might have children, a spouse, where it makes it very hard, much harder than if you were just by yourself. Family considerations, work commitments, possessions, future plans, romantic attachments, school, fear. The list goes on and on that could affect us at that moment. But this is the moment when it stops being a concept that we've always talked about and look forward to, to becoming reality in real time. And Jesus' specific instruction in verse 31 is, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, because that's what she did. Will we look back longingly to the world we're supposed to leave behind then? And Jesus then makes a statement that determines what we will do. Verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, as Lot's wife did. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, in case that's not clear enough, let's look over to the thought where it's made more emphatic in John 12 and verse 25. John 12 and verse 25. Because I like the way he says it here. John 12 and verse 25. I think it's more plain and gets more to the heart of what the issues are. John 12 and verse 25. 
John 12, 25, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life because that will be the difference maker. Do we love this world or not? Can we let go of all the things that we have acquired? Including our careers, our possessions, connections. It's a comparison. Do we love our life the way it is? We want to hold on to that? Well, Jesus says we'll lose it. But if you hate your life, that means by comparison, of course. But I think the key phrase is in this world. In this present evil world. If you hate that, you will gain eternal life. Or at least have the opportunity for it. Our moment of decision will determine if our in our hearts... We love or hate our life in this world more. And we may not even know that now. But when it comes down to it, it will be revealed. As it was for Lot and his family. This scripture perfectly lays out the result of either choice. Losing it all or gaining it all. And whether we realize it or not, we are laying the foundation in our hearts for this choice in our everyday lives right now. Luke 12, Luke 12 and verse 34, a simple statement that says so much. Luke 12, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not only now, when you read this, but in the future, when the chips are down. In that way, the big decision is built on thousands of smaller decisions that reveal where our treasure is, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, etc., And these smaller decisions right now indicates whether we love this life more than the next. And that brings us to the connection with all of this to this feast. We are here to catch the vision of the next phase of God's plan. And I hope we have. It's an incredibly positive and hopeful vision meant to inspire us to desire it. But not only desire it, but to reach for it. To press toward it and to pray for it. As Proverbs 29, 18 says, and it's been mentioned many times throughout this feast, where there is no vision, the people perish. And perishing almost literally happened to Lot and his family as they lingered. Because their vision was limited to the here and now. And what they were losing. They almost perished because of that. God was offering them protection and safety. Life. 
But they almost didn't take it. The same could happen to God's people in their future moment due to a lack of vision of what God is offering us. This feast gives us a glimpse of what God is offering us. Something we all desire, we ache for deep inside. All humans yearn for these things, but we can never obtain these things in this world. Peace, safety, prosperity, a changed society without satanic influence. We all want that. First in the millennium and then in the fullness of the kingdom of God, we want all of that. A vision of that kingdom must be real for those who will face that moment of decision in the future, though. And instead of looking at what we're losing, we must indeed instead see what we're gaining. As Jesus said, death or life. But this is what the people of God have always needed. Hebrews 11 Throughout the ages, God's people have demonstrated which life they choose, which world they choose. Hebrews 11, let's begin in verse 8. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. We read this earlier in the feast, but it's good to read it again. Because this is the difference. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited. And the reason he did his life the way he did And was willing to do all that is because he waited for the city which has permanent foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking elsewhere. He had a vision of something else than the here and now. Verse 13. These all died. Not only Abraham, but all the others who are enumerated here. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. None of them. Has yet received the promise. But having seen them afar off. Seen them as a vision. That they were moving toward. And grasping for. Having seen them afar off. Were assured of them. Knew that they were a reality. Embraced them. And confessed that right now. That they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out in this present world, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, which they still have not entered Vision has been the difference maker for God's people to successfully endure through the ages for all time. And vision will continue to be the difference maker for God's people to successfully endure what's ahead. Go down to verse 39. In the same chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 39. Kind of a summary statement here. And all these 
having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they who came before and chose that because of the vision they had should not be made perfect apart from those who also have that vision. And may that be us. Therefore, Hebrews 12, verse 1, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The analogy here is running a race, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. And some have been running this race for decades. Some here have been running that race for decades. Many here have been doing that. And I am so inspired whenever I meet someone who has been running the race since the 1940s or 1950s, that far back. I met a woman at breakfast the other day who has been running since 1964, and I hey. Enjoy being able to tell her that I was two years old then. And she's still running. And isn't it awesome that they've been running so long? Now, for those of you who have been running that long, many of you, perhaps all, may not have the chance to face the moment of decision yet ahead for God's people. It's one of the reasons I envy those who die in the faith before that time. Because you've made it. They've already successfully run their race and are simply awaiting their change. And that is awesome. But for those of us who continue to run, notice the key phrase in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are to look ahead. You don't run a race looking back. Because you can stumble when you look back. Instead, the race is before us. The path is before us. Not behind. In fact, this is how Jesus ran his race, as it says in verse 2, for the joy that was set before him. Vision was necessary for Jesus to endure. And I believe this concept of looking ahead was behind the angel's instructions to Lot's family as they fled Sodom. Let's go back there one more time. Genesis 19 and verse 17 and notice what they're told. They're in Genesis 19 and verse 17. Genesis 19 and verse 17. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside, the angels brought them out, that, they, that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. In other words, look ahead and don't stop. Don't stop. Keep moving forward. Basically, it's the same as the phrase, run with endurance, the race that is set before us. You keep moving. 
You keep running. You keep going. You don't stop. And to what were, are we looking ahead for us? Well, I think it should be beyond the place of safety. To the ultimate reward. Being born into the family of God. If our goal is only to make it to the place of safety, we may not make it. Because I don't believe everyone who makes it to the place of safety will be in God's kingdom. The vision of that reward should inspire us to look ahead and never stop. And to get a sense of that vision, I'd like to share a fictitious journal entry of a firstborn fruit born into the family of God, having made it and looking back. Now, what I'm about to read is something that a deacon from the Akron, Ohio congregation, Mr. Aaron Varell, wrote and used in a split sermon during this last Feast of Trumpets that I found inspiring and felt it felt fell right into what I had planned for this. And so I asked him if I could borrow it. I'll give it back to him after the feast. And as I read this, if you're not uncomfortable doing this, you may want to close your eyes as I read this and imagine this for yourself. I'm so overwhelmed with joy and vindication and anticipation that I just have to get all of this out on paper. Fortunately, it is so much faster now to simply think the thoughts and have the words appear on the page. In the weeks leading up to Jesus' return, we could all still vividly remember fleeing three and a half years ago. None of us had expected that the place of safety would be there of all places, so it was a test of sorts for us to even go in the first place. Some of us knew people that refused to come for various reasons. Some didn't want to leave their loved ones. Some didn't trust the messenger. Some had major projects nearing completion at work. In one case, a college student was going to wait one more day to travel in order to take final exams, but never made it. In another case, a family stayed behind to fix damage to their house from a recent storm, but also never made it. We knew God would work things out for them in the end, but it still pained us to think about what they might have gone through because they loved the world too much. Don't get me wrong. Those of us who made it there were not perfect either. We were scared too. And we had to continue to fight against the creeping doubt as time went on. We sometimes wondered, had we made the right decision by coming here? We didn't have good access to news coverage, so it was difficult at times to ascertain what was going on out there in the world. Are things progressing as we understood them, that they would from prophecy? We certainly thought about and discussed venturing out to get information. It was certainly possible that we had made a mistake, right? But by the grace of God, we had the faith to stick it out to the end. And so it was with all of this as a backdrop that we all felt such a sense of vindication when we finally heard the trumpet blast. We felt ourselves rising, and I immediately noticed that the pain I had felt for years in my neck and lower back was gone. We knew then, more than we had ever known before, that we had made the right decision, that our faith was not in vain, and that we knew that we were blessed beyond measure. Words cannot remotely begin to describe that overwhelming feeling 
But we were now suddenly aware of each other in a new way and were able to perceive each other's reactions to this sensation. We were also keenly aware of the presence of one above us in the clouds. And although only a few of us had ever seen him face to face before, there was an unmistakable familiarity shared by all. We knew him. And we knew that he knew us. So in one sense, it was like an introduction, but at the same time, it was also like a reunion of long lost brothers. It seemed like we took such a long time greeting one another. I got into a long conversation with Noah about the engineering challenges he faced in designing the ark. But as the humans perceived time, it was all done in less than a second. I write this as we are descending towards the Mount of Olives. After all, as a spirit being, you can really multitask. And we are all so excited about the work ahead of us. It is truly amazing that I can see every single human being on the planet at once. Yet so heartbreaking to perceive their despair, their fear, their anger, their hopelessness. But I also know that we are their hope. And I know what they have to look forward to. I just can't wait for them to know it as well. That's all for now. We have a battle on our hands. Signed, a newly born first fruit. So let me ask. Is the vision God has given us through his word and this feast enough to inspire us to keep Looking ahead. Of course, we're all inspired now by all the messages we've heard, but you know how life is. What will it be like in six or eight or ten months or even six, eight or ten years from now when life is taken over and perhaps this vision fades as it has so many times in the past? That's the challenge we all face. We have all these devices that can remind us of all sorts of reminders. We can even set them to go off perhaps years in advance. So perhaps we should all set a reminder every three to six months to review key scriptures that remind us of the vision. A few scriptures I would suggest is Romans 8, Hebrews 11, Revelation 20 through 22. Add your own scriptures that are personally inspiring to you, but let's not forget the vision that was given to us. But let's also not forget the strength we gain from each other. Notice something about Lot. And that was that he was isolated in Sodom. By himself as the only righteous person, as it said, as Peter said. And isolation makes any of us vulnerable. Malachi 3. If you'll turn there now. Malachi 3. Verses 16 and 17. Because we're going back where we live. Back to our jobs. Back to school. Back to our homes, back to our troubles. And as I said, beginning, Satan is a master of distracting us. 
from what's really important. But we're also going back to our congregations. And so as it says here in Malachi 3, verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Or as the King James says, spoke often to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. One of the reasons the feast is inspiring is because there are greater numbers of brethren than all of us have in our congregations. It's massively encouraging and validating to know that we're not alone. And we're not. And this is just one feast site of many where God's people are gathered together. And by meeting and talking with others from many different areas, we understand better how God is working with the entire body of Christ. All of us individually, wherever we live, collectively in a larger group in our congregations. But when we get together like this, and in other opportunities such as camp and other social activities where large areas come together, we know. We know we're not alone. So when you get back home, take advantage of every opportunity to stay connected with the rest of the body because that is vital too. And so, brethren, the moment of decision is closer now than it's ever been. Romans 13 and verse 11. Romans 13 and verse 11. Paul wrote to the people of God then, but it's so much more applicable to us now. Romans 13 and verse 11. He said, do this, knowing the time, having an awareness of our times. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, especially now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We are each preparing, every single one of us, one way or the other, for that future moment every day. And the day will reveal where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's strive to keep the vision we've gained here during this feast. And for a final scripture, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. 1 Peter 1. Beginning of verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice it says, for a little while. It doesn't seem like a little while where we're going through them at all. But in the perspective of eternity, it's just a moment. So, you greatly rejoice... That you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, ultimately the salvation of your souls. We are that much closer to that goal. So let's keep looking ahead. Do not stop. And remember Lot's wife. 